Hello, I'm Regina Botras and welcome backstage where we talk with theatre makers from actors, directors, writers, theatre heads and beyond about their life in the theatre and how they got to be where they are now. And I am over the moon to welcome my guest. It's Lex Marinos. He has worked across all areas of the entertainment industry as an actor, a director, a writer, radio commentator, producer and festival director. He is an awarded an OAM for his services to the performing arts. He has been the chair of many cultural institutions and has worked across the country as the head of festivals, as well as in film and television as an actor on our radios as a presenter. He's also a writer and a keynote speaker. But We are here to talk about his life on the stage and there have been many a theatre stage he has trodden. He's worked at STC and Belvoir, MTC and Nimrod, among others. And he's back on the stage at the Old Fitz Theatre in Happy Days, the Beckett two-hander alongside Belinda Giblin. And can you believe it? Theatres are opening again. I'm so very much looking forward to getting back into that magical space. Please welcome Lex Marinos. Thanks, Regina. That's very kind of you thank you very much thank you so much for coming on so much to talk about but before we do i want to get a sense of how you came to the stage now i know that you grew up in wagga and you have from a migrant greek family are they that kind of family orientated warm-hearted family what was it what was life like for you growing up well i I guess they're fairly they were fairly stereotypical in in that way you describe them. Um, but I think more importantly, uh, when when I was growing up in the uh, mid, you know, in the 1950s, early 1960s, uh, it was a very, there was quite a substantial Greek community in the Riverina, particularly based in, in Wagga Wagga. And, um, and there were a lot of uh, community get-togethers. The, the community came together for a lot of events and, and things, and they were generally exuberant and, and very, you know, lots of singing and dancing and, and generally seemed to be, uh, I mean, uh, in retrospect, I think it was an ability to express themselves in a way that they couldn't do at that time quite as liberally in the in the outside society. Uh, you know, there was still quite a high degree of racism and, and uh, I mean, I think they probably tried to stay out of trouble and just, you know, run their cafes and, and whatever the other retail shops they were in just to, to keep out of um, out of the way and just steadily make a living and uh, and devote themselves to their families. But when they came together as a community, uh, it was a chance to blow all of that away. And um, and that's how I recall it anyway. But they were very happy times, mm. certainly. Mm. So did you grow up working in the cafe? Of course. <laughs> um, yes. Family <laughs> provides cheap labour, uh, as, as many, many migrant families have discovered. Mm. Um, Yes, we did. I, I mean, I, I I used to prefer it out in the kitchen with my dad and mm. a couple of uh, other fellows that worked out there, but occasionally behind the counter. But I, I used to get a bit embarrassed behind the counter, so uh, I kind of left that to my older brother. Um, but I did use the opportunity to pinch drinks and <laughs> and, uh, and sweets and, above all else, cigarettes. <laughs> um, <laughs> I even learned how to take a cigarette out of a packet and replace it without anyone knowing quite a trick. So when did you come to the stage then? Because you weren't, you preferred to be in the kitchen rather than the kind of front person. Mm. Well, I, I guess when I was at, uh, I mean, I'd always loved it. I'd always enjoyed 
going to it, and we saw a lot of shows by virtue of having a a cafe. We put up posters in our shop window, and we would get free tickets to shows that came through town. And there was quite a substantial touring oh, yeah. circuit in those days. You know, you know, everything from country and western shows to uh, to Sawley's variety shows and stuff like that, which people who've grown up in the region will recognise that name. Um, and so I'd always enjoyed going along to them. When we came down to visit friends in Sydney, you know, Mum would always take us to the movies, and I loved that as well. And uh, and there are a couple of cinemas in um, in Wagga that we saw the movies at and a drive-in. So I was always kind of enjoyed it, but did never consider it would be something mm. I would do until uh, I went to university and I started um, and uh, started at University of New South Wales. There was a newly inaugurated School of Drama as an autonomous um, school. And so I, I went to that, mainly, uh, I must confess, because I saw it had a lot of girls enrolled there, and, and I, uh, I was quite keen to, to, uh, to meet girls, and um, that seemed to be a good way to do it. And it was a terrific course, and it was very academically based and theoretically based, and that was terrific. We read every play that was ever written and a lot of dramatic theory and stuff. But the practical side of it escaped me a little bit, but there was a healthy university drama society and, and certainly within the course were were several... It was a small cohort that first year, mm. but among them was, um, was a number of people who had professional aspirations and indeed one, a director called Arnie Nimi, who had already yes. started a... Uh, a career in theatre, and he was mainly coming to university to dodge the draft, the Vietnam draft. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and it was through Arnie really that I got introduced to the stage, and I, I really, uh, I really enjoyed it. I, I mean, I thought I'd only pass through as an actor. I thought I'd, I probably wouldn't act for very long. That I was really looking to direct. I think, but I enjoyed. Right. I enjoyed acting, and then when the time came to finish university, and there was options to stay on at the university and tutor within the school because I'd done an honours degree and stuff, and but I'd also started to get a little bit of part-time work as a, an extra in movies. The Australian film industry was going through something of a renaissance, and so mm-hmm. there's a bit of work around, a bit of TV work, and, and so I thought I'd give it a go for a year or so, and uh, if that didn't work out, I'd do something else. And <laughs> here I am, 50 years later, still hoping it's going to work out. So there wasn't an expectation for you to take over the family business and stay? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Of course there was. Yeah. But I did have the advantage, as I say, I had an older brother, and he got he copped most of the family pressure. Right. So, it, I mean, I don't think he had... He, he was a very good painter in his youth and a, and a better musician than I was, but he had all of the family expectation that he would become a doctor. Oh. And, you know, that's why they migrated, so their kids could be educated right. and enjoy a better mm. life and stuff. So, um, so I was quite happy for him to have that uh, pressure, and he became a doctor. And while my mum would have liked the same thing to happen to me, and, and you know, there have been times where I thought, I wish I'd followed her advice. Uh, her advice. Really, but I didn't, and I. Uh, but I enrolled in university and went a different way. Why do you think you regretted that? Is it just money, or is it just the the industry, or why? Uh, it's not. It's never been about the money. Uh, I mean, I've not really. Uh, it's always about. It's always been about. You know, is this the best thing to be doing? Is this the most worthwhile thing I can oh, do? Okay. And um, and especially when I visited hospitals and been in hospitals or been there with sick kids and stuff like that and I thought this really is a, a, a marvellous vocation for, for those who um, particularly in paediatrics uh, particularly treating you know improving the lives of and mm. in many cases saving mm. the lives of, of kids is um, 
it's hard to think of a more noble yeah. calling, really. So have you found a way to sort of fulfil that kind of desire in your, you outside of the theatre? Well, uh, I mean, I try and I try and keep busy. Not really, I, I don't suppose. I mean, it's a, it sounds fanciful now as I hear myself talk about <laughs> it. I, I don't think it was ever a, a reality. But uh, you know, when whatever regret I had was only right. fleeting, and I certainly have no regrets about the, uh, the road I ended up going yeah. down. So yeah. um, uh, you know, I, I still I'm incredibly lucky, and I have a very have had and continue to have a very fulfilling life. Mm. So you mentioned, you know, the racism growing up and one of your early roles is Kingswood Country. And I would just wonder about how maybe roles have changed for you over the years in that kind of stereotyping um, and the theatre and how the theatre roles reflect our country and those changing ideas. I think the theatre tends to be a lot more uh, liberal than... um, Okay. ...than... The visual medium, like film mm. and TV. Film and TV very much depends on image, and I mean that's the medium. And and, mm. uh, and I think people like to have shortcuts towards uh, what the characters are. So so it generally tends to be stereotypically cast. Mm. And um, okay. and certainly most of my early stuff on TV, we're playing, you know, non-Anglo's of some description. In the early days, it was just a non-Anglo. Was we were all the same. <laughs> I, I tried to explain once that there was a difference Never between Greek, Greek, <laughs> Greeks, <laughs> Greeks, and Italians, and it took some convincing to realise we were different. But um, I think it finally came down to saying, "Look, we cross ourselves in a different direction." <laughs> so we're down to the that. defining. Anyway, yeah, that right. seemed to be the only thing that made sense. Um, uh, anyway, I, I think it's gotten better over the years, but theatre has always been pretty good. But but TV and film, I understand, is works on stereotyping. It, it's it's a break, and and there's there's a great willingness. I have to say, there's a willingness on behalf of casting directors, and even directors, and even producers to cast more diversely. But it tends to, you know, when it comes to the crunch, the final decisions tends to still stay with. The network, mm. or in film case with the distributor, and they want people they can sell. They they want people that they can recoup money on uh, on their investment. So they tend to make the safe choices mm. and go with uh, with the established people, and and uh, tend not to tend not to be too innovative in the way they they cast. Mm. Um, but anyway, you know, it's it's the nature of the industry. Yeah. It operates differently in different areas. I mean, I enviously watch. A lot of uh, American and British and European uh, series, and I see how how colorblind casting is just accepted yeah. there. It's a reality for them. I mean, I, I don't see anything like that on our TV much, unless it's uh, unless it's Master Chef or something <laughs> like that, which seems to be a more genuine representation of diversity than we than we kind of get in our drama. But I, I don't want to sound like I'm whinging either. I've had a good run and uh, yeah. managed to make a you know, get a lot of work out of it, so I'm happy. So I I read that you studied at Stella Adler School. Mm. Tell, tell me about the kind of, I don't know, the craft of acting for you and maybe how it transfers over into your life as well. Like, how, what what did you learn as an actor? Oh, well, I, I mean, prior to working with, you know, it's, it's funny, isn't it, even after all these years and... And with her long since dead, I still refer to her as Miss Adler. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> uh, Stella was a very formidable woman. She was a, she'd grown up and uh, from a theatrical family in New York. You know, was a star in the Yiddish theatre before crossing over to the mainstream Broadway mm. theatre. But it was a time when um, American theatre in the 30s and 40s was discovering Stanislavski as a way of method of working. And uh, that developed into the method in some hands by Lee Strasberg and, and others. And Stella was one of the interpreters of Stanislavski for the Americans. And she was actually the only one of the Americans who who I think went to Paris and actually studied at the feet of Stanislavski. Oh. So, uh, so it's kind of a direct link mm. there, which is uh, kind of good. Um, but it was just her meticulous approach to a script and the fact that she was... She was so uh, forensic and ferocious about how she analysed the script and, and looked at performance and regarded performance and what she expected of a performer. So it wasn't, it was, I mean, there were small, there were large areas of technique that she could improve and she did in my case, certainly. But it was, I think I, I, think I understand now much better than I did at the time. It was more about, how you behave as an actor and what you need to do to be an actor rather than the acting itself, if that makes sense. Um, and she she was very, uh, you know, she made... She, if you didn't... If you turned up without having done any work, I mean, it was just... She would just lash you because you were wasting... Quite rightly, because you were wasting her time and she didn't... She wasn't there to have her... Her time wasted. But if you turned up and had done some mm. work, she just was wonderful at opening up, at refining it, at planting ideas in your head of suggesting ways of doing it better, mm. suggesting what you could get rid of, what you could elaborate okay. upon. Uh, so that's that's kind of what I learned. But I learned I learned more about being an actor. I, I think um, not to belittle everything else I learned, mm. but I, I mean I came out with that really feeling okay. Acting is a serious business and you need to take it seriously and you need to work hard and if you're lucky, you get lucky. Right. So when, when you say it's the way you behave, is that mean? does that mean more your attitude towards the work? Is that what you mean? Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. It's, okay. it's, you take it professionally. You do your homework. You do your research. Oh, so she was never one for the method mm. as such there where you just relied on what you had in your own... Skill set. You know, where yeah. you you kind of adapted the role to mm. suit yourself. Um, she was much more interested in using the imagination and, and certainly using emotional memory, but using uh, your imagination to open up mm. uh, approaches to the character and to the way you could work. But she was also very, very, um, very strict on telling the story, okay. you know, not getting in the way of the story, allowing mm. the story to be told. So that was a great lesson in cutting out extraneous stuff that often as a young actor you do more than you need to do because you want to pay people's attention. You <laughs> want people to kind of a look See at me, you. look at me yeah. fixation. Mm. And she got rid of a lot of that, mm. quite rightly, mm. um, because that's not what it's about. It's about mm. allowing the story to be told and being in the moment and telling the story. Mm. So... Uh, but it was to do with your attitude towards work, that you didn't come to... Re you know, if it was a 10 o'clock rehearsal, then 10 o'clock meant you were there at 9.30 mm. and you were ready to go by 10 mm. o'clock. If you turned up at 10 o'clock, you were late, mm. basically, because you'd need to hit the floor, 
ready to work, yeah. and she was very strong on on that. Quite once again, quite rightly so. Yeah. And um, so it was that, that sort of thing about what you do, about how you need to, uh, you know, you need to take care yeah. of yourself physically and mentally um, and emotionally. You need to look after yourself, and while you need to experience things, it's uh, everything. Uh, has a place and a time and uh, moderation, so mm. you need to have a lifestyle that can accommodate that. Mm. You need to be prepared to be able to work nights. And, oh, you know, all yeah, that yeah. So, is there a particular role that sticks in your memory as something that is, you know, may- maybe most challenging for you over the years, or something that uh, kind of was a role <laughs> that really led you somewhere? No. <laughs> well, I find them all pretty challenging, to be honest. Every role. <laughs> Yeah, pretty well. Well, they all—they're all new when you come to them. Mm. So, and they've all—they all inherently have questions that require some examination before mm. trying to offer up a solution or an answer. Mm. So, uh, and if it's not a challenge, there's no point doing it mm. really. Um, so, it, it's good to have the challenge. But I can—I I mean, there was a—you know—just offhand, I can think of a. Dorothy Hewitt play called um, Fields of Heaven back in whenever it was, sometime before I was born. Um, and that was, that, you know, having to carry a leading role in a new play is, has all sorts of challenges to it. I mean, the role in, in the teleseries of The Slap mm. was very um, challenging and, and uh, you know, and that I had to work hard on mm. that. Um, so they're, but they're all. Uh, there's no one role in particular I think of. I mean, I, I enjoy working on new shows, so um, uh, that's a challenge in itself. Trying to get a new play yeah, up and running, and indeed. and work out what your own contribution is to mm. that and where you fit in. Mm. Um, but uh, but that's you know, uh, as I say, if if every show didn't have a challenge to it, then uh, it'd be boring. I wouldn't be interested in doing it <laughs> well let's have a look at chat about happy days so well the the other question i can't help but thinking and especially since you know theaters are opening up again here in sydney is that um how do you keep sort of stage fit for for performing <laughs> when it when it's so intermittent well that's a very good question um in my case uh, i suppose um during the lockdown i've been able to continue doing some radio and some voiceovers and I've got a bit of a home studio that I can work from so I've been able to work on that side of it a little bit mm. and that's kept me that's kept me going plus a couple of um, workshops and you know in the non-lockdown periods I've been able to do a couple of workshops oh, and, yeah. and uh, that's been I always enjoy doing those working with new writers uh-huh. and invariably with a younger cast um, so that's that's one way that I do it but I was talking to Belinda Yesterday, Belinda Giblin, who's who does Happy Days. I mean, she's the one that has ninety five percent of the dialogue. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and she had to she had to work every day at it because she would have forgotten mm. that she had to work every single day. She became a Beckett character, in fact, because she there she was performing the show to no one every single day just so she could retain it. Uh, and I understand, mm. and that's an extraordinary discipline. Mm. You know, my workload is not quite so onerous, so. Um, so as I said to her, I feel as though I'm coming out of retirement um, to do. To do, who would have thought I'd come out of retirement and do the same show I did before I retired? Um, but that's how it feels to me. I, we'll get together tomorrow and go through. She goes through it every day, so she's pretty good. But I think um, once right. we get together tomorrow, I'll, I'll come home in a panic, realizing how much I've forgotten and how much work I need to do before next week. <laughs> 
So take us into the the world of happy days. Uh, yeah, paint the picture. And also, like, in the small space, in the old fits, how, because mm. I know it's, I know the play, but for anyone who doesn't, this is a yeah. scene. Well, it's hard to de- describe. It's, you know, 60-odd years ago when it was written, it seemed like it was impenetrably obtuse and... And how would we ever work it out now? Now it feels like the world has caught up to Beckett. Um, yeah, Sixty years later, it says, "What was the? What's the problem? It's it's easy. There's a woman who spends half the time in, or spends all the time in a mound of rubbish, talking about happy days um, and trying to rig, trying to con- construct or put a structure on her life, and which is the process of art, where we try and put structure on chaos. And it feels now in this contemporary production by Craig Baldwin, very fine director, that um, that we are in a post-apocalyptic landscape and she is buried up to her waist and crawling around somewhere in this mire. And I mean, the, you know, the, the rubbish dump is a great metaphor that Beckett uses for the world. Um, and crawling around somewhere in that, uh, that dystopian lagoon at the back of the mound somewhere is is Winnie's <laughs> husband Willie and that tends to be me who's who's maybe just that one step up from being a pig um, you know in the evolutionary scale so so and then she talks about and tries to reminisce and tries to get engaged with Willie but he's he hasn't got much verbal skill left um, mm. But she needs to keep talking. She needs to keep talking to get through the day. She needs to be able to remember things and put a structure on her life. Uh, as as the play progresses, the second act, there's some time elapses in the second act, the shorter second act. By now she's buried up to her neck. And Willie finally comes around from behind the mound and they uh, have to confront one another at the end of the play. And... Um, and there's a, a gun between the two of them. Mm. And what happens after that, I don't know. <laughs> he does really uh, capture relationships so well as well, that kind of uh, the dynamic where you're kind of codependent on each other as well. That Well, uh, uh, absolutely. But also, just, oh, absolutely, he does. It's, it's, it's excoriating in places. The relationship between the two of them, but there's still—I uh, I mean, we did find there's also moments of of tenderness between the two of them, where they do actually come together. Yeah. But it's more about it. It is well, it is certainly about the relationship. It's more about how you get by, how you what what do you need to do mm. to make any some sort of meaning out of this brief moment of time that you have between. Between being born and dying, as he says in Waiting for Godot, we're born astride the grave. Mm. And uh, it's about how you give meaning to that life, what your existence, existentially, what you can make of it, and uh, does it have any value? So, I mean, they're, they're big questions he he asks, mm. and that's, that's the, you know, I was thinking about this the other day when something came up in conversation, I think, well, it's... And someone said, oh, well, you artists, you artists, have, you know, you've always got the answer to stuff. And I said, no, well, no, we don't. We don't have any answers. Or what we have is questions. Mm. We don't have answers. The audience is the one that has answers. 
um, we can only ask the right questions at the right time. Uh, I think that's that's the greatest expectation anyone could have of us. And um, beyond that, uh, and Beckett asks those kind of questions, like what does it mean to live? Mm. How do you make a constructive life? How do you fill in that time in a manner that is um, not going to send you mad? Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. You know, and... Uh, Sometimes it does send you mad. Really big questions. And and you can't help but wonder, ask about this play. I mean, is it dirt? Is it rubbish, is it? I just think of it, it's dirt, is the dirt. It's the, it's rubbish. It's all the stuff we accumulate. And, our baggage. You know, that we, absolutely, <laughs> and that's what the metaphor is. It's about the baggage and the rubbish that we live inside of and generally and eventually <laughs> consumes us, um, takes over us. And uh, so, I mean, he's... Um, he, and he uses that image quite a bit mm. in some of his plays, you know, and and there and it, he plays with time. Um, he goes back and forth. Time is a fairly elastic commodity when you're mm. trying to fill it in, and um, and certainly for Winnie, it becomes more and more desperate as she starts to lose her routine, as she starts to lose the things that she sets her day by, mm. you know, which are menial tasks like. Brushing her teeth, doing her nails, fixing her hair, you know, a lot of those external things that, that as she starts to lose that routine, it starts to become quite poignant about how she's going to manage and the fear that she uh, that she clearly feels. Mm. And, um, and Willie just seems to be in a process of constant deterioration and disintegration until... Mm. It, it ends where it ends. Certainly a comment on oh, ageing and memory and Alzheimer's and our time mm. as well mm. that we're in. It seems a poignant piece for today because we have in a lot of ways lost and changed our routines. Everything is... Well, we ha- well that's absolutely correct. And that's, and that's um, you know, I mean, I guess that's the function of life anyway. Nothing stays no. the same. <laughs> we're in a state of constant transition however incremental it, mm. it may it may be but I mean the other thing about Beckett that you really appreciate or I really appreciate from doing it you know being inside it rather than watching I mean I've always loved his work and I've always mm. loved watching them but I, apart from a student production of Waiting for Godot which I was you know far too well equipped to be able to do <laughs> at, that, at that time. And who were you? In, in, in uh, I was um, lucky in lucky? waiting for yeah. in a student production of Waiting for God. Yeah, oh, yeah. hadn't learned that big speech. But uh, what I what I really relish and what I notice, and, and especially Belinda, who's so wonderful in the play. But there's so there's the words are so important, and he, and they're so they're so scrupulously and fastidiously crafted. You you know immediately if you get them in the mm. wrong order. It just it just sticks out like dog's balls it's like oh ah. that was the wrong word and that you know he's so precise and and that precision is is gives you a great deal of momentum and and a great deal of um support i find it really reassuring that, that the writer knows exactly what he wants mm. uh it means that i uh, that's not a responsibility that i need to worry about i need you know in the sense mm. that I, uh, I i know we're secure in the hands of a great writer um and that that will that will provide a strong foundation for where, where, wherever we want to go with it, or however we want to interpret it. Mm. So, that's always that's always uh, you know most plays are, are uh, 
you know, 80% right, say, you know, or between 70 and 90% right. But but the really great writers get it like 95% right, and that's that's a big difference, just that small, mm. that extra amount. And that's the joy of, of doing it, is to be in a Beckett play itself is just a, a wonderful experience. Yeah. So great, so so great, and yes, the spell that's being cast by the words in the magic of the theatre. <laughs> oh, indeed, indeed. Lex Marinos, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, my pleasure, Regina. Thank you. And that was Lex Marinos. He is performing in Happy Days, which is playing as part of Redline Productions at the Old Fitz Theatre from the third of November to the thirtieth of November along with the wonderful Belinda Giblin.